There are no other Everglades in the world. They are, they have always been, one of the unique regions of the Earth. Remote, never wholly known. Nothing anywhere else is like them. Their vast glittering openness wider than the enormous visible round of the horizon, the racing freeze saltness and sweetness of their massive winds under the dazzling blue heights of space. They are unique also in the simplicity, the diversity, the related harmony of the forms of life they enclose. The miracle of the light pours over the green and brown expanse of sawgrass and of water, shining and slow-moving below. The grass and water that is the meaning and the central fact of the Everglades of Florida. It is a river of grass. That is the opening passage from The Everglades River of Grass, published in 1947 by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. You've certainly heard that name before, but not in the way that you should have. Her name was given to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 1990 on her 100th birthday. The high school entered the public conscious last year when a shooter killed 17 people. After the tragedy and the devastation in Parkland, a group of young people, survivors of the event, became outspoken activists concerning the argument around gun control. They spoke nationally, went on the news, and became public figures. This was not surprising in the mind of one man, Karamo Brown from Queer Eye, who was also a graduate of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. On a podcast with his fellow castmate Jonathan Van Ness, Karamo said that it makes complete sense that these survivors became activists when you consider their school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. That's the type of thing instilled in you as a student that you must go out and make your mark. It is your job to carry on that legacy of Marjorie. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. This week, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the grandmother of the Everglades, and a legacy bigger than any one woman. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Finally this week, our person of the week. For most of us still working, it can be comforting every so often to dream of retirement. That is to say, the kind of retirement which is synonymous with relaxation. Out of the question for the woman we've chosen this week, if she had worked for a bank or an insurance company, she would have retired 33 years ago. A whole generation has come of age since then, and she is still working. She has spent the last 70 years trying to save the Florida Everglades. She is 98, and she is still at it. That's from World News Tonight with Peter Jennings from ABC News over 30 years ago in 1989. She was the person of the week that week, being praised for her environmental work in the state at the age of 98. And like he said, she had been working for the environment for 70 years, ever since she moved to our state in 1915 at the age of 25. Before then, she lived in Massachusetts. She and her mother moved there after Marjorie's parents separated in 1896 when she was just six years old. She was born in Minnesota, but spent most of her youth on the East Coast. She went to Wellesley College in 1908, where she pursued a degree in English. Her life began to unravel when her mother passed in 1912 from breast cancer. Two years later, things got worse when she married Kenneth Douglas a smooth talker who married her simply to get money out of her and her father, who was living in Miami. Kenneth was married to another woman in secret, and because of all this, Marjorie left him. In the fall of 1915, she made the change that would define the rest of her life. She moved to Florida. Her father had established a small newspaper in Miami called the Miami Evening Record. 
Founded in 1903, the newspaper hit a major financial failing in 1907, but was saved by another famous Floridian, Henry Flagler. Flagler gave them the money to bring themselves back with a new name, the Miami Herald. I'm sure you've heard of them. Marjorie began working and reconnecting with her father in 1915, putting her English degree to good work at the Herald. She had experienced a difficult couple of years in the chilly north, but the warm subtropical mood of Florida seemed to lift her spirits, and reconnecting to her father for the first time in 15 years was vital. She had a new purpose with her daily column, and she was soon the editor of the Society page. This put her face to face with several social events and organizations, most notably the women's clubs. She was now on the collision course with a group that would put her on the path to the rest of her life. About 20 years before Marjorie came to Miami, the city was officially established, 1896. That marked the incorporation of the city, and draining was now essential if the city was going to grow. The surrounding swamps and wetlands were being dredged, and allowing water to flow away, it dried the land out. At the same time, a group known as the Florida Federation of Women's Clubs was banding together to fight these sorts of things. From very early on in Florida history, the biggest champions for environmental conservation were women's groups. The Florida Federation of Women's Clubs were fighting hunting, dredging, and general destruction of the surrounding nature. Marjorie, by exposure, began to aid in the fights. She was writing about these things in her column now. She joined the groups in all their causes, including civil rights. In 1916, she joined the suffrage movement and traveled to Tallahassee to speak on it. It was that same year that the FFWC gained a major victory in their environmental cause. They were the very first to float the idea of an Everglades protected park, and in 1916, got the Royal Palm State Park. Things were different now for Marjorie. She started writing about the environment in her weekly columns in the Herald. She was preaching the import of the environment everywhere, but especially in Miami. The Everglades, she had realized, were essential to the identity of the city, and there would be no point in growing the city if we weren't growing with the surrounding nature. She had started learning about this concept called regionalism, which states that the society and its nearby natural world had to work hand in hand to grow, to make sure that the area had its own distinctive culture. This was a very early conservationist idea, and the idea of preserving nature wasn't really on the table as of yet. For Marjorie and other early quote-unquote progressive conservationists, the usage of natural land was just part of the deal. Marjorie herself dreamed of using the swamps for tropic agriculture. She believed that the problem at the point was not the usage of land, and rather the improper usage. Developers were thinking more like it was New England and less like it was the subtropical climate that it was. She said once, quote, All we need really is a change from a near-frigid to a tropical attitude of mind. Unquote. This sort of growth is evident throughout Marjorie's entire life. She was constantly changing, learning new things, adjusting her stance, and becoming an outspoken advocate for that new, enlightened thought she had come to. She was very critical of her own opinions. At one point, she supported the Tamiami Trail construction through the Everglades by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. When she found out about the poor treatment of black migrant workers in the town of Belgrade by sugar farmers, she said, quote, I feel greatly at fault in not having made a loud public protest about Belgrade before this, unquote. She was always getting better, and she had plenty of time to do it. One such example is in 1930 on a congressional trip with several federal employees, writers, and members of groups in the state. She visited the Everglades up close and personal for two days. 
She had left the Herald in 1923 and since then had been working on writing short stories and working with her organizations. After this trip in 1930, however, she started writing almost exclusively about the Everglades, some based on true stories. One such story was called Plumes and was a fictionalization of the true story of Guy Bradley. He was the warden for Wild Birds in Monroe County until he was murdered by plume hunters in 1905. This will certainly be a topic of a future episode, but we'll get there when we get there. One article by Jack E. Davis, who is a historian on Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, reflects that many of these short stories still had humanity as the focal point and nature as the secondary feature or a backdrop. It took her a few more years until this changed, and when it did, it was dynamic. It came in the form of a non-fiction novel that defined her entire career. The Everglades River of Grass was published on November 6, 1947. Just one month later, President Harry Truman designated the Everglades National Park. She had spent years researching the area, and it fundamentally changed her as a person. Her words, in turn, fundamentally changed the country's view on the nature around us. Most notably, she had changed the opinion on what a swamp or wetland really is. It wasn't just a stagnant pool of mossy water, no. It was a river. It was flowing. It was alive. The national park that came immediately after was the first one designated to a wetland and the first one designated for biological preservation rather than landscape or geological preservation. The book was a huge success. It took the scientific and dense rhetoric and made it accessible and flowing. Having read it myself, you can instantly see why it was so acclaimed. It reads less like a novel and more like a love letter. Her words are beautiful, elegant, poetic, dancing with this flowery language, but it's still very realistic. She manages to convey this mystical idea to the images she's presenting while also refusing to sugarcoat it. She speaks on the conflict of culture and the balances of the ecosystem. She describes the Everglades the way other authors would describe a fantasy world. It's unique, it's unreal, and it's fragile. Right on the inside cover are two maps, one of Florida with the counties defined and another zoomed in with the northern edge of Lake Okeechobee being the top of the map. It shows the most important part of this book, that the Everglades aren't just this area right next to Miami, but they extend all the way up to Lake Okeechobee itself and beyond via the Kissimmee River. Next there is the table of contents, and you can see now the scale of this book. It begins simply enough with chapter 1, the nature of the Everglades. Soon she is diving deep into the history with chapter 5, captives and martyrs, or chapter 12, white man's return. She covers everything from pre-European interests to the Spanish arrival, the Seminole Wars, and the growth of American enterprises in the south of Florida. The final chapter is the 15th, and it is titled The Eleventh Hour. That was over 70 years ago when Marjorie called it the Eleventh Hour meaning danger was imminent if action was not taken. If only she knew. After this seminal book, she dug into her work as a novelist. In some respects, she was done. She had helped establish the Everglades, she had brought awareness through her work, and she had established a life for herself in Miami. She was 57 now, and her father had passed only a few years prior. Things were changing all around her, and some in Florida weren't quite on the conservation train. But she had her own work to do. A hurricane had hit right before her book was published, leading to mass flooding and several people perishing in the state. To counter this, the government called upon the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to start finding ways to make water more manageable. 
The Corps had been an ally to the South Florida Water Management District, sound familiar? Who'd been designated to keep the water out of the way of urban landscapes. While Marjorie set to work being a late-in-life novelist, the Corps built 720 miles of levees, 1,000 miles of canals, and 200 water control devices. The most notable of these was the dredging of the Kissimmee River. This river is part of the basin that feeds Lake Okeechobee, and Lake Okeechobee feeds the freshwater of the Everglades. So despite the Kissimmee River not being in the park itself, the Corps' work was going to affect the Everglades in a very serious way. And there was more. There was a drought in the south of Florida for four years. These levees and canals were supposed to control and feed important areas, but during this drought, another area needed sustaining. The Everglades Agricultural Area, or EAA, the same spot of land that is now causing debate in the algae bloom situation. Sugar farmers were working in the EAA, and when the water was running low there, the levees and canals would feed vital water to them, instead of the actual Everglades. For four years, in the late 60s, thanks to sugar farmers, the Everglades were looking drier and drier. Things hit a breaking point when, in 1969, there was a proposal to build an airport just north of the Everglades. The design for it was massive, larger than New York's JFK, and would take up 39 square miles. It would be used to support Miami as it continued to expand and take in more visitors. This land was not technically inside of the National Park, but it was only six miles away. Though the park has boundaries, the Everglades expand far beyond that boundary, and this airport's damage would have been astronomical. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas had been writing and working on the down low for the last two decades or so, but this jet port set her off to work. She had just formed in the same year the Friends of the Everglades, an organization set to protect and defend the surrounding ecosystem. Marjorie was about to turn 80 years old, but this organization had reignited her work. They began to fight against this jet port, and a year later, they succeeded. The jet port had built one minuscule runway already, which still exists as a training facility, when the Nixon administration heeded Marjorie and gave up the fight. Marjorie was back in the game, but she was different now, and no one was prepared for the new and improved grandmother of the Everglades. Back in the day, Marjorie had a very specific view on environmentalism. While still informed and critical, it was imperfect. Now she believed that pollution and destruction were not only immoral, but actively dangerous to the entire world. She started preaching that without the Everglades, Miami would be an arid desert, and that action needed to be taken now to prevent this from happening, now being 30 years ago. In 1982, she famously said, quote, Conservation is now a dead word. You can't conserve what you haven't got. That's why we are here for restoration. Unquote. Alongside the Friends of the Everglades, the next few decades of Marjorie's life were filled with action and change. For one thing, the Friends of the Everglades were largely led by women. Most of the officers were women, and when Marjorie retired as president, her replacement was also a woman. This was part of Marjorie's belief that no one understood how to fight for something crucial more than women. And these women made some big enemies, especially in the 80s. Big Sugar, everyone's favorite, hated Marjorie. They possessed 500,000 acres of land in the Everglades agricultural area between the lake and the Everglades. Several of these sugar farmers were actually on the South Florida Water Management Board. Marjorie did not like that. They despised Marjorie because she refused to back down on her restoration stance. She wanted the dredged waterways to be restored to their natural flow so that the natural water continued to enter the Everglades rather than the EAA. 
1983, Governor Bob Graham approved a $100 million program called Save Our Everglades. The first major action was the restoration of the Kissimmee River. At the age of 93, Marjorie and Governor Graham shoveled the first pile of dirt to begin undoing the sins that the core and the sugar industry had made just a few decades ago. She was revolutionary. She didn't just fight for the environment, she was fighting for the rights of immigrants, migrant workers, women, and more. She joined the ACLU decades before, and despite making enemies with farmers, state officials, and industry leaders, Marjorie never slowed down. Well, of course I'm still working for it. I mean, I think the future of the Everglades is something that we've all got to work for. We've got to guarantee that the Kissimmee Okeechobee Everglades Basin is maintained. Otherwise, the whole country will go to the Dickens. It'll be a desert, and there won't be anybody want to live here. That's her at 98 on World News Tonight on ABC News. Her eyesight was failing at this point, but she was still writing and still working. Late in life, she was still arriving at city council meetings and shutting down arguments to build on crucial land. Hecklers and critics would show up and call her names, but she stood anyway, and when she spoke, she could, quote, make a redneck shake in his boots, unquote. It was in 1998, at the age of 108, that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas passed. She had retired eight years previous from the Friends of the Everglades at the age of 100. She had received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1993, at the age of 103. Her ashes were scattered over a wilderness area named after her, deep in the Everglades National Park. The Everglades are still the largest tropic wilderness in the country, and the largest wilderness east of the Mississippi. The Friends of the Everglades is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. In 1994, she said, quote, No one is satisfied with their life's work. There is always the need to carry on. The most important thing is to prepare competent people to follow you. Unquote. I find that incredibly gratifying. I shudder to wonder what Marjorie would say about the algae bloom or big sugar or the water management today. But she left competent people behind us. And the most spectacular thing about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is that no matter how much you write about her, there's still more to unfurl. Her career as a journalist in the 20s or as an author in the 50s or in the early years of the Friends of the Everglades in the 70s or the speaking she did in the 90s. Nearly a whole century of Florida history is marked by Marjorie's presence in it. And if ever there was an example of the type of person we should aim to be for Florida, Marjorie is it because she fought for something she believed in because it was the right thing to do. And more importantly, because she enjoyed fighting for it. I'll let her say it herself. Why not? It's a lot more fun to fight for something important than fight for something unimportant. And it's a lot more fun to fight for something than not to fight for anything. So fight on. It's what Marjorie would do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. This year has been wonderful to work on so far. All of the shows of January have been a delight to make, and I can't wait for the stories that I'm working on now. Seriously, you are going to love them. Next Friday, I'll be covering a topic that people have been requesting since the very first week of Wait 5 Minutes. Manatees. That's right. The Sea Cows. If you have an idea for an episode or just want to hear something discussed, send me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on Instagram at wait5minutespodcast. I look forward to hearing from you. 
Also, if you have a second, it would mean a lot if you left a review. It helps make the show more visible to others, and honestly, it brightens my day to hear that you're enjoying it. I seriously, seriously appreciate it. The additional audio for this episode can be found in the description below, alongside the titles of the songs used and all the sources. Also, Drunk History recently did a short episode about Marjorie that you will love. I have watched it like a dozen times since I've been writing this. You can find the link to that below as well. I'll see you next week when we go in search of Florida's famous manatee. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and drink more water. Oh, and I leave you with one last clip from Marjorie about what it felt like being 98. Have a great week. I'm glad to be 98. <laughs> Better than being dead, you know. <laughs>